Hello, seers, smellers, listeners, tasters, and touchers. Today, we're doing an episode that delves into the delicious world of the senses to talk about what's available to you as writers, composers, and world builders. I'm Brooke Warner, and I'm here with my co-host, Grant Faulkner. Grant, today's guest is Janet Fitch, who is most famous for her super bestseller, White Oleander. Uh, And I read it close to when it came out, so that must have been 2002 or maybe 2003, more than 20 years ago. Uh, And I remember being entranced by her story. And when you love a book, you love its author forever. (laughs) That's the beauty of the author-reader relationship, I'm sure you know. Mm. So then Linda Joy uh, Myers, who I teach memoir with, took this sense writing class with Janet last year, Writing Through the Senses, which prompted us to invite her to teach for us. And I was mesmerized by her and how she talked about this subject. And that's how it ends up that she's with us today. Uh, And so, Grant, I'm curious to know how conscious you are in your own writing about the senses. And do you give them equal attention in your fiction writing? Well, it's it's interesting because our conversation with Janet, she was mesmerizing. and She was so eloquent and poetic in the way she talked about sensory writing. So um, it it really inspired me to, to pay more attention to this. I actually want to take her class that you mentioned. But to answer your question, uh, do I give them all equal attention in my fiction writing? Absolutely no. <laughs> it's it, it's interesting because, you know, we humans, we're, we're just such dominantly visual creatures. And I, I've read statistics. And I think there's some stat that, that I've read that descriptions in novels are something like 80% visually oriented. And I haven't done an analysis of my work, but my guess is that that, that most of my descriptions are also visual. And uh, so I write with very little taste or smell descriptions. Um, Janet really gets into the sense of smell in interesting ways. And I do, you know, I have touch and I, I, I know I have hearing as well, but touch and hearing only get like a slivers of the senses, you know, that overall pie chart of the senses, I think. And Although I have dabbled with a novel recently um, that is about sound and the main character has retreated into an almost pure state of listening. So so it's been interesting to, to do that, even just dabbling. So I'm curious, Brooke, how are you thinking about senses in your memoir? Yeah, I'm thinking about it a lot more than I ever have. And maybe it's because of that class with Janet. You know, I mean, she really did open up my mind to thinking about how important this stuff is. And I've always written thought pieces. And, you know, by definition, those are things that lead with the head. Uh, And with memoir, you want to lead with the body. You want to be in the body. Uh, And certainly that was something Janet mentioned in our class in the fall. She's going to talk about it in the interview today. And that, I think, opened up for me in a really big way because of Kiese Lehman. Like he really talks and writes about writing in the body. You know, he had this very corporal experience that he has shared, you know, both in his teaching and his writing. And so I've given it a lot of thought, you know, about how do you get into the body and how do you push yourself to, you know, not just rely on the head and the visual, as you said, Um, you know, you're not the expert or the teacher when you're writing memoir, you're there to show your experience. And there's that key word show. Uh, and, and that's what you're doing. You know, you're, you're showing sensory details. It's all about the senses. Uh, so, Memoir writing is 
pushing me, <laughs> you know, it's, it's moving me into spaces where I'm thinking more about the sensory details. And I've noticed in my writing recently, you know, thinking about things like Janet's going to talk today about the quality, the texture of a voice. What does someone sound like? Do they have a high voice or a low voice? And that was something just in my most recent writing session that I was playing with, you know, just what does the voice of this person sound like? And not using cliches, right? I mean, really finding verbs that do the heavy lifting and this whole and very important thing of being embodied, right? Because like in memoir, you embody yourself. In fiction, you embody your character uh, and the body has these gifts of taste, smell, sight, sound, touch, right? So just that alone, remembering that the reader is inside of these characters that you're rendering on the page and as such, they're experiencing through you, that is so important to remember. So, so I have been, you know, I've a bit definitely been working on this, which is why I wanted to bring Janet as a guest today. Very happy she said yes. Uh, Grant, I'm curious to know about your process because I was thinking that this maybe is something that writers might pay more attention to in revision. And you have often talked about preferring revision over generative writing. And I think it can feel like a lot of pressure to consider and hold all the things that you're supposed to be doing when you're generating new stuff. So what do you think about this kind of sensory writing? Like, is it something to be saved or thought about for second, third or fourth drafts? Yeah, I, I don't know that we should necessarily save it because I think many writers are just so descriptively inclined and varied and, and so much more florid than me just naturally because description, you know, it's not a strength of mine. And and gosh, just listening to Janet talk and provide the exercises she does, you know, I, I, I'd be curious to see what her first drafts are. I bet they're just so like sensorily alert, you know, but with me, it's, it's more the opposite. You know, I think most of my sensory writing I do happens definitely in later drafts, like you said. And that's partly because that's, that's what revision is to me. You know, it's, it's going deeper and adding layers and paying closer and closer attention to everything with each draft. And, you know, another way to think about this is, is through Mary Oliver's quote that attention is devotion. And I think revision is devotion and it demands attention. So revision is, you know, the perfect time for me to pay attention and devote myself to my senses. That's a great segue to the topic of observation, uh, because observation and attention are so intertwined and you kind of need one for the other. And Janet has suggested that being an observer become a practice for writers and that we stop and take things in, that we cultivate this. And sometimes we're just moving so, so fast <laughs> for my speak for myself, right? It's hard to stop and pay attention. And one of the things I love about good writing when I'm reading is the experience of getting lost or getting swept away. And the reason for that is like, you're getting swept out of your own experience into the experience of another person, you know, whether that author is an author of memoir that you're embodying, you know, you're experiencing their life or a character in a novel, either way, that's what I'm looking for in a good read. So I, I find that my memoir is definitely helping me to be more observant, but I'm curious, Grant, like, how do you think about your own powers of observation? Because we did touch upon this topic when we interviewed Sarah Manguso, mm -hmm. because so much of the commentary around her writing was like, she's so descriptive. She's so embodied. Her powers of observations are so specific and so acute. Um, and But then she'd been given this kind of backhanded compliment in the Times where a reviewer of her book suggested that Sarah 
feels more than the rest of us or that maybe she does. And and when we asked her about it, she really bristled at that characterization. Um, and it's a good interview to go back and listen to because she was suggesting it's a gendered comment. But it's also interesting to think about it because the level of hyper detail with which she writes is pretty in vogue right now in fiction. Um, but then I also hear readers and reviewers criticizing this very trend. So what do you make of that? I think hyper detail has actually been in vogue in literary fiction specifically for what feels like decades. And I, mm. I think that's because very detailed writing is one way to kind of prove how good your writing is. And and obviously a lot of readers like it, and I do too, to an extent. Um, but there's also the theory that this is what MFA programs specialize in, you know, helping people drill into a story, which being, you know, less concerned about the propulsion of a story or plot and to present a story through the the fineness of the prose. So I'm going to I'm going to give two different perspectives on on detail-oriented writing. And so Nabokov was a worshipper of detail and he said in reading one should notice and fondle details. There is nothing wrong about the moonshine of generalization when it comes after the sunny trifles of the book have been lovingly collected. He said to caress the details, the divine details. So that was pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> I love that quote. Uh, but conversely, James Wood uh, said in his book, How Fiction Works, a book that I really like, and he takes John Updike's fiction to task because he said, he said it doesn't work well at all, in part because of his of his prose, which is kind of oversaturated with this kind of very fine descriptions that, that Wood says frees detail into a cult of itself. Mm-hmm. And I, I really feel this sometimes. And, and as an example, he, he quotes the following sentence from Updike's description in his novella of the farm. And this is about a window pelted with rain. Its panes were strewn with drops that as if by amoebic decision would abruptly merge and break and jerkily run downward, and the window screen, like a sampler half-stitched or a crossword puzzle invisibly solved, was inlaid erratically with minute translucent tesserae of rain. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> so I don't know if that's writing with the senses or just showing off and showing off in a way that makes you look bad. I, you know, that's a hell of a description. I don't know. I don't want to do that in my writing or my reading. I don't want to think that hard about window panes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so Wood, he has this beautiful way of putting it. He says that this is an exaggeration of the noticing eye. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was an interesting angle. You know, as, as as writers, we can notice too much or do too much. And I think that that Janet puts this all in a really nice context when we talked with her. So, Brooke, I want to hear more about your take on this very detail-y writing I mean, for me, it depends on my mood. I do think people try too hard. I do think people overwrite, definitely. And then sometimes I feel that way about a writer and then I discover someone else I know loves that person, right? So I also think it's about our taste. But I was thinking about some guests who have had pretty hyper-detailed books of late that I very much liked. I mean, Paula McLean's last book, When the Stars Go Dark, was beautifully written, a lot, a lot of descriptive detail. Um, E.J. Coe, whose memoir, The Magical Language of Others, is one of my favorites of late. Same sort of sensory experience, very detailed, but with fewer words and descriptions. She's sort of a master of subtlety, right? So you can also do this with... Uh, fewer words. It's not that you have to be so effusive. Like we were saying, I mean, Sarah Manguso is pretty uh, widely known for being a very spare writer. (laughs) And yet, you know, she has this at the same time, it's like she's stopping time is kind of how I feel about her. That's that sort of magical 
power that writers can sometimes do. And, and, you know, I think there's something about the frequency. I've been thinking about like this idea of vibing at a high level, right? And uh, if most days I'm vibrating at a 12, when you read writers like this, you know, to take in that level of detail and to sort of sit with the, just the absolute um, weaving of words. And, and I think they're using like very specific details, but also verbs. I mean, the way that these people write can kind of bring you into a meditative space. And that's the part where I'm talking about getting lost and swept away. But I have to get from a 12 to a (laughs) 7 to get there. You know, it's like a downshift. And then when I get there, I can really love it. But sometimes I can't. Like sometimes I read something that I think to myself, well, if I were different or if I were in a different headspace, maybe I would like this better because the hyper detail it requires you, it forces you to slow down. And it's harder, you know, for those of us having really busy lives or times of life to get to that slower frequency and attunement. So anyway, I, that's, those are my thoughts on the topic, but Grant, what's your actual body experience of writing? Like, do you relate to this experience of needing to be like slowed down in order to get to a place where you can do that level of detail? Yeah, well, first, Brooke, I just I just want to say that both of us need a really long non-workaholic vacation. No kidding. And we need to go to essentially rehab for workaholics and, in fact, <laughs> and realize that you can't operate at a 12 except in a spinal tap type of movie about workaholics, which which we should maybe make, you know. Let's just add it to the list on top That's of That's a dream of mine, actually. Projects. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, totally. To work with Christopher Guest on a movie about, uh, you know, all the wild ways of writers. So I just think it would be a perfect follow-up to a Best in Show. All right. Let's add it to our projects and <laughs> we'll go up to a 13 or a 14 on the on the scale of 10. Excellent. But seriously, you know, this is actually, I mean, you hit upon one of my biggest fears and concerns. I, I have a really hard time slowing down and doing any genuine deep thought these days. And and I've been thinking of this throughout this conversation, how I need to slow down and notice, you know, to, to live like a poet, as Janet puts it. And I will say that I'm reading two really fabulous writers of the natural world who are, are very eloquent with the senses and their observation through their senses. And one one is Merlin Sheldrick's amazing book on, on mushrooms, Entangled. And then there's Robin Kimmerer's Gathering Moss. And both of these are nonfiction books, actually, um, but they're just beautifully written. So, so maybe there's hope for me in my senses yet. I think there is. And it's all about this cultivation and practice, you know, this, this cultivating, slowing down and noticing in our weeks, you know, even just little bouts where we can, especially since this retreat or non-workaholic vacation is not in our immediate future. So uh, <laughs> luckily Janet is coming on to give us some good ideas and just to inspire and mesmerize. So uh, looking forward to hearing what she has to say on these topics and more, and we will be right back. Welcome back, listeners. We are joined today by the wonderful Janet Fitch, the best-selling author of White Oleander, an Oprah book club pick, Paint It Black, and the historical novels The Revolution of Marina M. and Chimes of a Lost Cathedral set during the Russian Revolution. Her short stories and essays have appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Los Angeles Times, Los Angeles Noir, and elsewhere. She teaches creative writing widely online and in person. Welcome, Janet. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. 
So I had the great pleasure of inviting you to guest teach for one of my classes last fall, and you shared about writing through the senses, and it was a gorgeous experience. And I've thought a lot about you and your writing and teaching since then, notably because I'm working on my own memoir. Uh, Our listeners are writers of all kinds, memoirists, novelists, poets, genre writers. And it seems to me that outside of prescriptive self-help writing, that this body awareness that goes hand in hand with writing through the senses is perhaps key to connecting with readers. So I wondered if we could start here and if you could say more about writing through the senses and why you teach this topic and what you need to or might want to impress uh, to our listeners about it. Well, I think that at uh, this time in our civilization, 21st century, uh, people spend so much time on visual media that we're so out of touch with the rest of the senses. We live in temperature-controlled environments. We wear clothing that is so much more comfortable than ever. We don't have to bear up with uh, the scratchy wool skirt or the necktie or You know, we can live without awareness of our physical reality. We deodorize everything. We cook over, you know, maybe electricity now, back to electricity from gas even. You know, and we think of people who live in less mediated kinds of lives, you know, uh, you know, more traditional forms, more traditional environments, we think of them as like behind the curve or, you know, people who lived in in past centuries, uh, kind of impoverished is what we look at them. But actually, we're the ones who are impoverished. You know, we don't cook over open fires. We don't live with our animals. We don't experience the world uh, through the five senses. You know, we're just Things are being removed, being removed, being removed for comfort. But what happens is we sort of go to sleep that this organism that we walk around in every day is is like three million years of evolution to create this sensual sense. um, The senses are a bridge between the inner and outer life, and it's three million years of this exquisite tool that is the body to perceive the world with. And we're being divorced from it. And I think that's one of the reasons people are becoming so crazy in their uh, anxious and crazy in their daily lives is they live on sight that visual is okay. The sense of of hearing is mediated. We play music to drown out ambient sound. We're unaware of what's going on around us. And we kind of walk through this weird visual daydream and writing reflects it. Our writing is so impoverished. When I work, I often, people are saying, I can feel like I'm in your story. And it's because I write from the body of the protagonist, the narrator, so that you're not looking at the story. You're not looking at people having, you know, conversation and that's it. You're actually living inside the story. When the protagonist bumps their shin, everybody goes, ow, because 
you're in the body of the character. When the character's cold, you're cold. You know, you actually live inside the story because you're in the body of the character. And so much of contemporary writing is, to my mind, it's so impoverished. It just seems so unnecessarily divorced from the fact of physical life, the fact of life in the body. It's like reading, it's like Beckett, you know, people swim up to each other in mid-ocean and they exchange dialogue and they swim away. There is no world. And we live in a world, you know, we're part of the world. When people speak, when they stop speaking, there's ambient sound, but people are so unaware, they're so used to drowning out ambient sound that they don't know how, that, that that sound creates the world. If I'm talking to you and the garbage truck goes by in the street, that creates an outdoors. It expands the world from this frame to... I can hear something right here and I can hear something out the window. I can hear a helicopter. So that makes the sky exist. It, it opens the world up. That's good. I'm going to let the garbage truck go by and let my dog bark and do all that. (laughs) And use it in your work. It creates the world for your reader. Right. That you can hear something close by. You can hear something. Every sense has a superpower and Sound is, dimensionality is the superpower of sound. It's so inspiring to hear you talk about this. As as a writer, I'm just thinking how I, you know, writing from the body is just such a wonderful phrase and a wonderful way to think about things. And when you were talking about sound, I think so much of John Cage, who would sit in his like New York City apartment and listen to traffic jams, but he would, he would imagine them as these great orchestral symphonies, you know, this noise that's usually annoying. And I, I wanted to like bring this back to your, your book, uh, White Oleander, which came out in 2002. And it was your second book. But it hits so big, you know, that's the kind of book that when you say the title, people have either read it or know it or they've seen the movie adaptation. And I saw on your site that last year you sat on a panel called Surviving the Literary Life. And your journey from White Oleander to today must be full of, you know, fascinating turns. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know what it is. What, what, what's a thing or two you'd impart to our listeners, who most of whom are aspiring to publish? And are there words of wisdom or things you know to be true about surviving the literary life? There's different levels of this, you know, the first level, when people ask me, you know, what's the one bit of advice that you can give? (laughs) Your readers are not going to like this, but it's like, pay cash, pay cash (laughs) for everything. Don't put a bunch of stuff on credit if you can avoid it. People say time is money, but as, as a writer, money is time. And you need time. If you get locked into an extravagant lifestyle or even a lifestyle you can't, you're always financing. How do you buy yourself time? But the other advice I can give is that the struggle that you are uh, enduring right now to write your book is always going to be the same. It's not going to change as you get into your second book, third book, fourth book, publish. Once you get published and you have, you're working on a second book, you're still going to have to face the same kind of doubt, the same kind of, of uncertainty, the same kind of uh, 
groping. Every book, it's like you're creating the tools anew for every book. You're always a beginner. You're always starting from scratch. So you're never there. You never make it. it it's, not, it's not that kind of life, which is what makes writing and all the other arts it's self-renewing because if I get good at something, I get bored and I'm not going to do it anymore. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, yeah, there you go. Okay, fine. Whereas there's no um, there when you're an artist. Every, every project you start, you're a beginner again. And I find that so renewing. Um, and as a, it makes writing a lifetime project because every project is different. Well, Janet, in the class you taught for us in the fall, you shared that every sense is good at certain aspects of the creative process. I really loved that idea. And I think, you know, writers should probably have a chart in their writing space that they could reference. And and so high level, I mean, I don't expect you to go through all the senses, but maybe choose your favorite or choose one. Like, I'm, I'm curious to know if you could share something about that, you know, like which sense is good at a particular creative process. And is there a particular sense that you feel does more heavy lifting? than another? Well, I think we're overly dependent on the visual, but we don't know how to describe a glass of water. You know, it's learning to find how do you describe the visual? Well, light, if anybody has taken a photography class or painting class or something like that, you, you learn that that we don't see things. We see light falling on things. So just learning to describe physical objects, learning to describe a face, you know, telling us that somebody has blonde hair and blue eyes tells you nothing, nothing. You can't, it's not giving your reader anything in motion, but light is always active. Light is always doing something. So even in an empty room, you can have activity because the light is active as it falls on things. So if I was to describe, say, myself in this light, uh, I can see a reflection of my camera here. Um, I would describe the direction the light is coming from and you find language to describe how light pools, anything water can do, light can do, anything an artist can do, light can do, light can etch, light can blur, light can, can pool, it can drip, it can rub, it can caress, it can, anything a hand can do. So if I was to describe, say, my face, uh, when I teach, I often have a volunteer who comes in and just models and then leaves. And then people write, share how they perceive the person's face. So if they're wrinkly or something uh, or bald, uh, the person doesn't have to feel <laughs> insulted. But I look at how the light is coming in from the left. It's a cool winter light that you know, gently pools on the left side of the face. The, the, there's a highlight in the rounded nose. So you look for highlights and lowlights, just like a painter does. 
and you find the verbs. So all of the, the, um, anything an artist can do. So rub, scum, you know, scumble, etch, uh, paint, uh, and then challenge yourself to look at a glass of water and see if you can describe it in language, because working with the senses, like anything else in writing, it's a twofold process. It's observation, and then it's finding the language to uh, express the observation. So it's first you have to see it or perceive it, and then you have to find language to convey it to a reader. Janet, I'm picking up so many things from this conversation as a writer uh, because I feel like I'm very kind of narrow in the senses that I bring to my writing. And Brooke told me one thing, uh, one technique you used that really inspired me. Um, she said that in the class you taught, you shared that you keep tangible things, like you collect fabrics and you have a collection of things that you keep around for smelling and for evoking memory. And you even confess that you, you apparently are a stealer of paint chips. <laughs> yeah, I love paint chips. <laughs> Yeah, I think the ideal uh, uh, job for a writer is naming paint. That's funny. <laughs> Coming up with great names. Yeah, I, ha I have a, a, a scent organ, mm. which is uh, little bottles I got at a, at a garage sale. And I stuffed cotton in there, and I went to one of those body shop places uh, where you scent your own products. And I gave them, you know, seven bucks or something, and, and they let me... Uh, put some drops of certain fragrances into those bottles that evoke memory. Hmm. Scent, the superpower of scent is memory. It helps you remember there's something, you know, so primitive about a scent that takes you right back. So finding your own memory scents, things that bring back times and places and people, and then giving your characters their own scent giving places in your story a scent, remembering that this, this is probably one of the most primitive and powerful of the senses. So if you'll read any of my books, in the Russian Revolution book, for instance, you know, each character has their own scent, except usually the protagonist, because you don't usually, you know, smell your own scent. That's <laughs> not happening. But every character has their own smell. The the mother has a certain perfume, Après Londé, which is an early Guerlain scent, because it's it's French, and we're in the middle of the of the World War One. There's no imports happening, so it it speaks to an earlier time that this person still has perfume and still has French perfume. The father smokes cherry tobacco, so you can tell that he's in the house even when you can't see him. You can smell the cherry tobacco, and there's the father. Uh, she has one friend who's a Bolshevik, a uh, young Bolshevik uh, girl from high school, who smells of graphite. She's a, you know, always smells of pencil. She has two boyfriends. One of them is an officer in the Tsarist army pre revolution, and, you know, he continues to be part of the story. And he smells of florist lime which was a men's fragrance, and he smokes cigars. So cigars, florist lime, and then he has a honey smell of his own. He's a very attractive guy to her. She just loves the way he smells. And then there's a revolutionary that she, her other boyfriend, who smells of 
fresh wood. He smells like hay and fresh wood. Um, so everybody gets a scent in my works. Uh, and you probably don't notice it, but they do. It's important. I, I think there's a lot of sense work that the reader isn't aware of, but they love to read it because they're in it and they don't know why, but it, it doesn't matter if they understand why, as long as they have that reaction. It's so interesting what you're saying, Janet, because it strikes me that, you know, especially for like Russian revolution literature, you must've had to do some research uh, to think about what sense would have been there during that time. But I also know you shared that you, are observant, you're, you cultivate being observant, but also that you weren't so much when you were younger. And I wanted to kind of dive into that because I don't think I'm as observant as I could be. And it's not for lack of desire, but really for pressure reasons, you know, like I'm busy, I'm a working mom. Uh, I shared with Grant before you came on that I feel like a lot of days I'm buzzing at a 12 on a scale of 10, right? And so it's hard to be observant because I think when you're observant, you need to slow down a bit. And I just wondered if you could comment on this. Like, is there a connection between slowing down and being observant? Yes, I call it living like a poet. Mm. Mm. I have such such respect for poets. I have uh, my character, my protagonist in the Russian Revolution novels, is a poet. The mother in White Oleander is a poet. There's a lot of poetry in Painted Black, uh, the second novel. And there's a way that poets live in the world. They know that to observe, you do have to slow down and be quieter. Being a mom is so full of, of sense information. You know, so... What happens in re in the outside world is people are moving so fast, just trying to stay on top of everything and get the kid to the nursery school and get the groceries and you know get some work done and you know go 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 go. If we want to be writers, we take the time that our reader doesn't have to slow down and notice. That's the work of writing. That's part of it. You know, we owe it to the reader who does not have time. And then you notice the color of the sky. You notice light falling on a vase full of flowers and how it's picking out the edges of the pink and white roses or whatever. And it allows the reader to stop and have a moment and then look at the world differently. Man, when you have a reader writing to you saying, after reading a certain passage, you know, I, I really looked at my son's eyes and I saw the color that they were. And I never really took that time to, to look. And you're giving this to, to the reader. I mean, there are certain things that we do for people. And it's not just to, to entertain, it's also to kind of let them recapture the world that they normally don't have time. And we're so buffered from the world. So writers have to expose themselves. You know, they have to roll down the windows on a hot day and go, what is it like to be physically in a hot day driving this freaking car? So that you can give an unmediated experience to the reader. 
I'm really interested in the tangible practices writers can take from this conversation. And, and you, you've talked about, you know, you keep a journal and you write down all the things you notice in your experiences. And it's, it's, it's clear that you love words, but this is, you know, it also cultivates a love of words and a love of experience. So I was, I was wondering if you can talk about the role that journaling, ah. you know, in this way captures experiences. And how yes. That, yeah. Yes. It's very important because, you know, it's the observation and the, language. And so if you don't make that transfer from noticing to seizing something and writing it down and putting it in language, there's a disconnect there. So what I do is I walk around with it. I always carry a small journal in my purse that when you see something that strikes you to take that extra moment and write down what that striking impression was. I Then you transfer that to the writer's notebook, which I you can do it on your computer. Within the writer's notebook, there be, uh, should be sections or sub-files of light, scent, sound, taste, and texture, among other things. I also do portraits of people, things that they do that I have to remember that. You think you'll remember, but you won't. Mm-hmm. Because we sit here in a room, often without windows, just working. And then how do you create the world? Oh, if I need a kind of light, maybe, or a voice. I do voices. I listen to people's voices and characterize them. So you take your observations and then you put them on your computer, usually uh, in categories. And then when you have enough, print it out, three-hole punch, and put them in a binder. So I don't know if you can see over my shoulder, but you see the binders there. Um, Oh, you! This is audio. I can see him. <laughs> to our listeners, there's some big binders. <laughs> I'm a big binder person because your computer eventually will die. Mm-hmm. Your computer will eventually be outmoded. Your computer will, whatever you're storing your information on, will eventually be lost. And the only thing that will survive the decades of your writing life is a three ring binder with paper in it. And that you can go into your binder once you've printed out and say, I've done 30 or 40 voices, you know, see if I can characterize the sound and the diction and the way people speak. Say I've done movie stars and I, I need a voice for my character because people forget. People don't just emit silent words on a page, you know, that they have a voice. Do they have a high voice? They have a low voice? You know, are they stutterer? What's going on? And I need to give somebody a voice. I'll go into my writer's notebook and I'll look at voices and I can pick, oh, I give this guy Keith Carradine's voice. Oh, I'll give this woman Betty Davis's voice because I've characterized that voice and I can use it anytime I want. And nobody's going to know that Betty Davis's voice, but it will inflect the way that character speaks. I think you could make some money off of those binders. Yeah, but 
<laughs> you know, people say, oh, there are sense dictionaries online. And it's like, yeah, but if you didn't create, if you didn't do the work to observe, if you didn't do the work to create your own perceptions and give language to your own perceptions, it's going to only be worth a hundredth of the value of doing it, creating your own dictionary. I agree. That's great. Because it's the practice of doing it that strengthens those muscles and, uh, you know, gives you a vocabulary, like how an active vocabulary rather than a passive vocabulary. People are so used to looking stuff up, you know, on their phones or whatever. And they look it up and they fill in the blank and then they forget it which is so different from having work to develop your own language. If you had to do that research that somebody else had done that you looked up on the phone and then forgot immediately, if you actually had to go out and do that research, believe me, you would have a deeper understanding than just convenience is really the enemy of writers. Isn't that the truth? As we enter into this world of AI, um, my gosh, I'm oh. a little worried for our future. But, you know, Janet, I, I, I would actually don't want to digress too far into AI because I want to just ask you about reading. Um, you're an avid reader. You, you say in your bio that you were an avid reader since childhood. It's clearly followed you into adulthood. And, you know, when I looked up what you're up to, you're writing books, you're publishing books, but you're also doing a lot of writing about other people's books. You write for the Los Angeles Review of Books and you participate in readings, which is kind of an under-celebrated thing for authors to do. So could you talk about your reading life and in closing, maybe share with us what you're reading now? I'm in two book groups. So I read books that I never imagined existed. Whenever I meet people from foreign countries, I always get a book list. Uh, I met two African writers over Thanksgiving, one from Ghana and one from Nigeria. And it's like, all right, you know, who should I read? <laughs> you know, I do review every book that I liked that I'm reading on Goodreads as a way of finishing the book. I finish the book and then I review it. I mean, I write a review of it as a way of crystallizing my thoughts about the book. So I can look back on the 500 or 700 reviews that I've done on Goodreads. Join me there. I always write in my books and I have a conversation with the text. I read like a writer, which means you don't just read for like eating a bag of Doritos. And oh, that was good. You're always thinking of... You're always watching. It's like a magician watching another magician. And I was like, how are they doing this? What's good? What's tasty? What's tasteless? You know, where have they dropped the ball here? You know, having that conversation with the book is really, is really important. I know somebody who teaches, um, used to teach at Antioch, who made his students do annotations rather than reviews or book reports. Uh, in an MFA program. Um, and annotations are not what you thought of the book, but how is the book affecting you as a writer? What are you learning from it? What's it doing for you? And you find as, you know, as a emerging writer, and we're all emerging writers, no matter how successful you become, 
you ask yourself, what am I getting? What is what am I getting out of this book? What's it doing for me as a writer? What am I learning? What am I? And if you're not learning anything from the book, if if the magician just is just it's like I can do everything this person is doing and I'm not learning anything from them. Then take a look at your reading life and ask how is feeding your writing life. If I, I mean books that I would never think of reading in this book group that I'm in, especially one of them, um, books I'd never imagine reading and really aren't to my taste. But it's like comfort in general. If it's to my taste, it's often not as useful, stimulating, irritating as things I didn't necessarily gravitate towards, not my thing. It's like you get more ideas on the periphery than feeding your preferences. That's why the algorithm is so bad. You know, it's like, oh, if you like this, then you might like this. It's like, don't go, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, go for the random, you know, is better than that. Do you have a recommendation to end on? Oh, my goodness. Well, let's see. The books that I have really liked uh, recently, the autobiography of Marina Abramovic, Mm. the performance artist. I just read that, um, Walk Through Walls. Uh, That was just a stunner. I read the biography of X Mm. by Catherine Lacey. That was a stunner. The Baudelaire Fractal by uh, Lisa Robertson, who's a poet. Amazing. Just so many amazing books. I'm reading something, you know, one of the African uh, writers, uh, uh, a book called Stay With Me. Um, Really, really fantastic. Just, there are just so many. Yeah, thank (laughs) you for everything, for your powers of observation and your reading recommendations and for being with us today. Thank you. And uh, I hope all your people write well and us too. <laughs> and you too. Absolutely. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Well, Grant, this week's trend is one that affects both of us personally because it's to do with Substack, a platform we've both adopted and which we promote by the very fact that we're using Substack to send our weekly writing out to our readers. Uh, But back in November, rumblings were beginning to emerge about Substack allowing white supremacist content on its platform, specifically via pro-Nazi accounts. Uh, And then The Atlantic published an article called Substack Has a Nazi Problem. And from there, Substack's problems have only continued to be on the rise. So let's get into this story and issue a little bit. Yeah, it's a really important one because it circles questions of free speech and the importance of content moderation. And it calls into question what we as a society will tolerate on our platforms and to what degree hate speech needs to be quashed. And and then what we as content creators will tolerate from the platforms where we choose to engage and post our own words, you know. Subsect has defended their very maximalist stand on free speech. And in December, one of Substack's founders posted... We don't think that censorship, including through demonetizing publications, makes the problem go away. In fact, it makes it worse. And so since then, though, it's removed five 
pro-Nazi substacks from its platform. But for many writers, that response, you know, falls way short of what's necessary, which is why we're covering this trend this week, because of one of Substack's most prominent contributors, Casey Newton of Platformer, is quitting Substack and going to a platform called Ghost, which is a pretty big move and a pretty big shakeup for Substack. Yeah, it is. And, and it will be interesting to watch and see what Substack does and how it chooses to handle this, because we have a problem in this country. <laughs> you know, white supremacy culture, language, calls to action it's on the rise. It's more visible than ever. Social media platforms have been a major asset to these people and groups who want to promote their messages of hate. And we are in such a scary moment as this war is raging in Gaza. Tensions are running high. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. I do not envy Substack the position they're in. And it seems to me that much stricter content moderation is necessary. The problem with having a hands-off approach to what you allow in your platform is that there are these voices and messages, uh, you know, at best, they're obnoxious, toxic, uh, but they're actually worse. You know, they're flat out dangerous. And then those become the loudest voices in the room. We have seen this happen on Twitter, uh, you know, and then the fighting and the outrage detracts from the good work that people are actually doing on these platforms. But I also really get it. Like they face a real challenge with the free speech conversation because it does feel like a slippery slope. Uh, and all social media platforms have to contend with this and figure out their approach to the moderation part or else we will end up with another dumpster fire like Twitter where, you know, I, I don't really care that everybody's evacuating Twitter because I don't like Elon Musk, but it has been a real loss to people who are using it in a legitimate and meaningful way. It's such a fraud issue and it's hard to watch too because, you know, these voices that promote hate, you know, and, and these pro-Nazi content creators, they're, they're bolder than they've ever been. And there's unfortunately a real appetite for this content. And, and that's not something that you and I grew up with, I know. Um, you know, first of all, we didn't have social media. And then second, this level of vitriol and open racism and anti-Semitism, you know, would have been just jaw-dropping and socially unacceptable in, in, in previous times. And, and now it's kind of becoming normalized, right? So I think these social platforms have to take more seriously the moment we're in and also realize that you cannot please everyone. And no matter what they do, you know, pe people are going to be unhappy. And some people are praising Substack's position on free speech and others are leaving in protest. Yeah, one of my authors recently sent me a note asking me if I was going to stop promoting Substack because of all of this. Mm -hmm. And I have still been mulling how I feel about all this because I really do love Substack. It's been a game changer for me in terms of getting back into my weekly writing like I used to when I was blogging regularly for Huffington Post. Um, obviously, I'm not engaged or engaging with any of these hate speech people or those writers. And if we exist on the same platform, am I complicit? You know, I, I don't think so, but this is a complicated question for us to grapple with. Mm -hmm. um, I want Substack to implement stricter moderation and to consider something like what Twitter was doing before Elon, which is that it was tagging posts with things like this is misinformation, um, you know, so whatever the hate speech equivalent to that might be. And then if Substack has already removed these five Substacks, it seems to me that they could create guidelines over what prompted the removal of those content pieces or those platforms and then just stick to their guidelines and say, you're not welcome here if you post this kind of content. But I don't know, mm. you know, because now I can see the free speech purists coming after me. Uh, so like I said, I just I really do sympathize with the platform founders who are trying to navigate these waters. Yeah, it's, it's a nettlesome topic, to say the least. I think it's one we're just going to be talking about for years, if not ever. Um, and I agree, you know, we need to set guidelines and then 
actually execute those guidelines. The companies have to execute them and support them. And I know, you know, I've read that Facebook has cut a bunch of its internal watchdogs and moderators, and that tracks with tech companies, you know, general libertarian ethos to this maximalist free speech policy, which actually, you know, when they put that out there, it they're putting it out there to absolve themselves from responsibility. And it also helps them save money. So those are considerations with their existing policies. So I hope that instead of running from the problem, that some you know tech platforms actually become leaders and role models in this space. And maybe that's a selling point. I don't know. It's definitely hard to end on such a down note, Brooke, but I want to thank our listeners for tuning in so that we can talk through tough topics like this. And, and because in the end, um, we'll solve them together, actually, as readers and creators on these platforms. So please keep tuning in to Right Minded and please invite your friends to join us so you can uh, continue our conversation here with others. See you next week.